Today, we devote the next half hour to theology. And a little something extra you didn't expect. This is Lanyap Theology. Welcome to Laniap Theology. I'm Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. I am Professor Todd Amick from Holy Cross as well. And we are here in our sixth episode, continuing on with the exploration of the Christian, but also just humanistic idea of person. Right. And what we saw before, especially in our, our earlier seasons, you know, we looked at the gospel. You know, we looked at God revealing God's self to us. We looked at the creed. We looked at the, sa- the sacraments, at the liturgy. We looked at all these elements, and each one presupposes that there is an I, that there is a person entering into that relation. And what we've done in the last couple of episodes is we looked at the significance of that. Uh, we reflected in, in the way that as theologians, and by this we mean generally those that reflect on what God has revealed in our relation with God, to be able to then say, well, well, what does God reveal about the nature of the human person, and how can I live that today? That's right. And so we've been looking at, uh, in the last couple episodes, the image and likeness of God as person in the Old Testament. We touched towards the end of last episode on, well, what would that look like as Christ? But that's what we really want to kind of focus on and hone in on in this episode. Right. So everything that that God reveals, that the three divine persons kind of revealing in in this pedagogy, in this step-by-step revealing of God's nature, God's being through God's activity in the Old Testament, we now see that that God reveals in the New Testament uh, that he is three persons and one God, and the second divine person in taking flesh in the incarnation reveals to us as human persons in a deeper, more profound way, therefore what we are ought to be. That's right. In our fourth episode, we, we, we ended that with a discussion of sin, and that was kind of mixed in with that episode about what sin did to the image of God. And the New Testament, to an extent, is the good news of salvation, is the restoration of our image in Christ, that Christ is the perfect image of God. And in coming to this world, in being born, having his ministry, but especially in his death and resurrection, it restores our image. It allows us in a, in a new way, in a way that we could never accomplish ourselves, to participate in Christ on earth, but most especially in heaven. Right, and what we saw, and, and a lot of times when people think, uh, or rather hear the word sin, and, and we don't pretend like we're, you know, we're, we're university professors, but, but we realize always that we're, we're talking with people, and we also are very much in the world. So we don't offer ethereal concepts and allow them to remain ethereal. We realize how profound they are, what a deep impact they have on our lives. Right. And so when we, when we use words, we, we want to gain an appreciation of how people hear them. And one of those words is sin. You know, most people, when they hear sin, they think prohibition. There's something that's going to make me very, very happy. And you, be it church, be it authority figure, be it what have you, in an arbitrary manner, want to stop me from doing that because what I want to do doesn't fit with your preconceptions of, of morality. And yet what we see in the scriptural narrative and the way that God reveals God's self is that sin breaks stuff. Sin hurts, sin stinks, sin makes us miserable. 
and four key areas, and, and these are also reflected in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 400 and, and 401 especially, that there are four key areas that sin breaks, that sin causes and infects and injects misery into, the first of which is the person's relationship with God. The second is the person's relationship with other persons, especially with regards to men and women. The third of which is the person's relationship with all of creation, which is to say the cosmos, the cosmos, all of creation. And the fourth is a, a profound area, and it's, it's something that we've been hinting at with regard to the person. And it's this interior aspect, um, which in Greek is uh, uh, syndikaresis here, um, which refers to the, the way that I relate to myself, that I am present to myself. Um, you know, you can think if somebody's really distracted, they said, like, I can't even hear myself think. You know, why when we, when we pray do we go and sequester ourselves? Well, the reason why is so that we can, we can be present to ourselves. So all four of those suffer as a result of sin. That's right. And so Scripture has an answer, if you will, to um, both the profound beauty of the revelation of, of what it means to be a person in the Old Testament, but also to the catastrophic event of sin, and that is Christ. I mean, in other words, we as Christians would see Jesus' coming is not a um, overtaking of the Old Testament. Um, in other words, eclipsing of it where we can just do away with it. Um, but it is a fulfilling. It is, um, in a sense, and, and, and to that extent, it there is kind of this, this if you will, move forward because a restoration has taken place, a restoration in the world, a restoration within our hearts, a restoration amongst relationships, a re- restoration especially with God. Right, and that's the order. Right. That that if, if we it. yeah if we experience you know this this you know what in in the philosophical tradition you know is ultimately be called alienation or 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 like a false ecstasis and ecstasy being outside of ourselves, that that. That is a fourth level of relationship, but that first one that sometimes we can miss is, I won't be present to myself unless I first am present to God and recognize God is present to me. Right. And so, um, let's look at uh, the, I think that one of the great scriptural passages, um, and it comes from the, um, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15, and many of you will know this and have heard it, which is the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that passage is talking about, in a sense, both the Trinitarian son, like the, you know, Jesus within the Trinity, or, sorry, Jesus within the Trinity, but... The divine son. Right, the divine right. son that is, uh, that is spoken forth by the Father. So we can call him son or word. Um, that is loved by the Holy Spirit. Right, which, which we see in, in the the preamble, the prologue to the Gospel of John. That's right. In the beginning was the Lagos was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is, in a sense, why he is the firstborn of all creation. In other words, that all creation is going to come through him from the Father. And yet, the reason why that's being said in Colossians is that eventually Jesus is going to become, in a sense, the visible son to fulfill both he and the Father's will and the Holy Spirit's will for all creation. 
In the fullness of time. Exactly. In the fullness of time. Both in the scandal of it is, of course, that it was at a particular time and at a particular place. That's why in the Creed we mentioned Pontius Pilate. And on the other hand, um, it has universal ramifications. The particular and the universal come together in Unite Christ. in Christ. Right. That's right. And, and, and another one is that um, kind of a, a text that strengthens the, the Colossians is Paul in Romans, where he says, um, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the first born among many brothers. What's important about that is that it's not just Jesus did this, and it's like, oh, great, thanks, Jesus, thanks for doing it for us. It's that it establishes a new relationship. And one described as brethren, that's right. As brothers, we can right. be brothers with God in Christ. So, in, in, in really, it is, is through our baptism that so original sin is vanquished. In other words, eternal death, the eternal fracture of our soul and our bodies is over. And that begins the relationship anew. In other words, our image is restored. So, those two texts that, in other words, Jesus, as Son of God, is the image, the perfect image of God. That Adam and Eve were not even the perfect images of God. That only Christ was because he was not only sinless, but never ever committed sin. In other words, he was tempted. Adam and Eve were tempted. The difference between Christ and Adam and Eve is they took the bait. He never does. But he's fully human, so he had the opportunity. That's one of the things we want to say, well, Jesus never done it. It is explicit in the Gospels that Jesus had every occasion to sin and never did, and that's what makes him the perfect image of God. And that perfection is kind of showered among upon us, that then if we can grab that ray of light, of perfection, it can begin to lift us out. It can begin to lift us, in, in other words, heal and bind up our own wounded images that we we know that we are and for some of us it's a it's a long for most of us it's a long journey that baptism initiates that but it doesn't complete it per se unless i mean if you were to die like the the second after your baptism Mm -hmm. or and there are different ways christians were baptized some waited until their to their very death they it's kind of a wrong interpretation of of understanding what baptism means Uh, it took the church a while to really kind of say, no, 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 baptism as an infant is as good as baptism um, as an old person, as an old man, um, because it the effect is the same. It washes away that original sin, restores, it begins a restoration of our of our image, and then it also begins our, our new relationship with God. And this efficacious sign, this sacrament, meets us in everything that we are as persons. It meets us in our intentionality, it meets us in the relationality, it meets us in the image, the interiority, and it also meets us in a physical sense in our bodies. That's right. And through this physicality, we also then have the assurance that what God promises in Christ is actually happening. We don't have to, in some ethereal way, imagine, I wonder if God is doing this. What we see in the witness of Scripture again and again is what he says, he does, what he does he says, so that when God says, I am doing this, and we see again and again in that witness of Scripture, in the witness of the church that he's making it happen, 
we understand then that when he says he's doing that in the life of the church and the sacraments, that that same movement of grace is occurring. That's right. And, you know, this kind of back and forth, this understanding of Christ as the the kind of the perfect image of the Father or the perfect image of the Trinity come down to restore us, that we participate actively in, in the life of the church, in sacraments, um, in prayer, in um, in other events that unite us together in the body of Christ. Um, it does have a profound effect on, in a sense, going forward in history and, and, and just in the church's life, how we understand person now. And so what I think we, is good, you know, when we touched upon the two scriptural pieces, I think I want to touch upon, in a sense, two moments in the church life, in, in the church's life, that um, bring kind of bring this into relief of what we need to understand, how, how we, it took us a while for us to understand Christ as the perfect image. Right, and as we understand Christ, what we'll see on the other side of the break, too, is that that's going to give us a deeper understanding of ourselves. We'll see you on the other side. Hello, friends of Catholic Community Radio. This is Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about some exciting opportunities to study theology at the largest undergraduate program in the region. We offer a bachelor's degree in theology with a minor in philosophy or a concentration in religious education. We also offer a Master of Arts in Catholic Theology designed for those who want to build the domestic church or to incorporate theology into their professional lives. Our classes are available both in person and online. We believe theology is done best face-to-face and at your own pace. Our programs not only offer Catholic truth, but prepare you to serve the church, your family, or pursue a variety of careers. If you have any questions, please visit our website at uhcno.edu. If you would like to contact me, please call 504-398-2122 or email me at ddelio at uhcno.edu. Welcome back to the second half of episode six of Lane Up Theology. I'm Dr. Dave Delio. I'm Professor Todd Amick. And we are, uh, we're, we're continuing to kind of delve deeper into um, what does not just the image of God as person mean, but what does Christ as the perfect image of God mean? And how is that going to kind of resonate down through the ages? Right, and what we see is that, that, that God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, begins in a, in a pedagogy, right? That's the right. way that a, a, a tutor would kind of hold your hand and walk you from what is known to something more and keep cutting the distance if you don't understand and more and more and more until with the incarnation, the coming of God where the, the distance is removed. That's right. God presents God's self and also presents to us the perfect image of the human. That's right, and, and upon Christ's death, resurrection and ascension, he leaves the church as his extended body throughout time and space to continue this mission of saying there is a brokenness and there is a renewal. And the church through the, the sacramental life, through uh, the priesthood, through the, the mass and the worship of the perfect image of God has given the world a profound, in a sense, icon with which 
to see how the image can be restored, their images can be restored. Right. And what you mentioned on the, the front of the break was that we're going to look at a couple of key historical periods in the, the life of the church. That's right. Uh, moments that helped us to better understand the way God was revealing God's self. But a, a, a thought that I'm having right now is that that I have had a challenge, and I can remember in my spiritual journey, which we explored in, in season one, of Lanyap theology, kind of our spiritual biographies, uh, the thought of you know why didn't he just stay? You know, right. if in, in, he could have stayed the whole time, right? In my faith journey, you know, my, my thought was, God, it isn't if if you are our love and if the fullest expression. I couldn't articulate all this, but but this was kind of the background. If if the articulation of love is presence, then why didn't you stay? Which leads us then to the the church and what we'll be exploring a little bit further in this season. But the question of how is your love? shown love which is typically manifest in eros and presence how is it shown more deeply somehow by your having sequestered that presence seemingly or at least at least kind of the visible signs of that presence drawn it so that we can kind of step up that's right and i I think the you know it took the church hundreds of years in a way of meditating on this image. So it, in other words, it knew it right away. It knew this is the commission. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what Christ has done. So maybe he gave us time to do it. That's right. But, and, and, and really it shows up around very soon after the, you know, and it's hard for us to imagine, you know, different religious traditions pop up in different way. And the Christian tradition started out as a martyrdom um, tradition. It was not a conquering tradition. We didn't, you know, Christians were not going around the world conquering people in the name of Christ. That's that's not true. Christianity was a marginal religion. It was on the, it was kind of underground. I mean, that's why we have the, the the fish symbol. Is that was a that was a symbol for that Christians could kind of know where are we going to worship this week, right? And not only that, but I've 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 heard that it's um uh, and and by the the fish symbol, of course, this this is an auditory medium on radio. Um, what we're talking about is the the two curved lines which together make a fish. Mm-hmm. You see them sometimes on the back of of cars. Sometimes there's a a, a somewhat disparaging um, Darwin written in the middle with feet, right? Right. Um, which of needs course, to evolve, right? yeah. Which which certainly wouldn't have uh, wouldn't be an insult if we really understood the relation as we've discussed between evolution and and also what God reveals, right? And and the cosmology, the way that God creates as well. But that Christians would identify each other, whereas where one would draw one curve of the right. fish and the other would draw the other in what could be described as the sacramentum, which is to say the the seal of two things fitting together. Right. That's right. So in around three thirteen, the church becomes public. Doesn't mean that the Christians weren't debating each other out in public. It doesn't mean you know the Roman Empire had this strange type of tolerance that as long as you kind of um, bowed to the emperor or bowed to. Um, the, the the high gods of of the state, you were okay to kind of debate it in the public square. Um, Religio, as long as you go through the state motions, you're right. left alone. Kind now of. Christians didn't do this, neither did Jews. Mm-hmm. You know that was that's. But so there was in because of that there were persecutions throughout the empire. It wasn't an empire wide one. There was only several empire wide persecutions of Christians, but 
local governors and and sometimes emperors would say, you know, we have to stop this because they are they're kind of weakening in their mind the state. You could also imagine the chilling effect that that would have if even if you're in a place where at this moment you're not being openly persecuted to know, wait a minute, the next governor could do this. Right. Do I really want to be on record as being a, a, a faithful Christian or, or at that time a faithful follower of the way? And, and what was interesting is that many of them did. You know, many of them said, you know, if this is real, mm-hmm. if Christ came and died for my sins, rose and then ascended to heaven, he's waiting for me. Then as for me and my family, we will follow the Lord. Yeah, and that's why, you know, there are accounts of pagans saying, see how they loved one another. They, they just couldn't, it was like, how could you be singing a song when you're just about to get your head chopped off by a how gladiator? How does this make sense, right? No, it doesn't make right. sense. And, um, but a profound change happened in um, the, going into the second decade of the fourth century. In around 312, 313, Constantine, unifies the empire, and he declares that Christianity can now be worshipped in the open. And within several years of that, um, he is going to declare that it is now going to become the official religion of the empire. In that period, Christians now felt like they could debate in an open way. And one of the first debate to kind of really hit the scene in this new openness was, who's Jesus? Is he really the person perfect image of God? And if he is, how? How is he the perfect image of God? So um, in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which was really one of the great local centers of the church, we, we tend to think Rome was the hotbed. It wasn't. Rome was Rome was um, an important and apostolic church because Peter and Paul were martyred there. And Paul, obviously, his letter to the Romans is his kind of introduction into to. It's his greatest maybe theological work, but it's also his, his introduction to, you know, to the Romans. But Alexandria and Antioch were the two kind of hotbeds where like theology and, and kind of the, the action of the church was happening. In Alexandria, there was a, um, a, uh, a deacon named Arius who, um, or I'm sorry, a priest named Arius who raised this question that, look, we know that Jesus is said to be the perfect image of God, but what does that mean? Well, it means he was the greatest human created through creation of all time. In other words, he's second to God, but he can't be God because Arius was scandalized by the fact that Jesus was a guy at a particular point of time crucified under Pontius Pilate. So he can't be the universal, invisible, all spiritual God. He can't be. He's That's got, his thought, right? Right. He's the greatest. But he can't be that. And then you have the, this a council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, that is called to really ask the question. You know, people think that that's a Trinitarian council. It's actually, no, no, no. We can't get to the Trinity unless we get to Christ first. Right. There's We've a got, relationality that precedes that. Father that's right. And son. Right. We have to understand this. And in the wake of it, it's like, well, this is why the Trinity is what it is, that the, the, the Father and the Son are... Um, they use the word homoousion, which is one in being or consubstantial, that they are the same substance. They are both equally divine. Right, and a lot of the, the language that, you, that, of course, we're going to use here is we're going to hear in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. So, so people have access to this in the Mass, but a lot of times people will recite the Creed, and unfortunately sometimes it'll go to rote and we don't really appreciate it Blow right through because it. we don't right. realize the wrestling process That's right. that allowed us to come up with this guided by the Holy Spirit and affirmed certainly in, in the councils. 
but we can also give a fair shake to somebody like Arius, who you know, who is trying to preserve. That's right. There's one God, monotheism. There's one God. That's and exactly we can't it. Can't compromise that. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, Arius gets Arius and Arianism gets a really bad name, but it's actually if you look at Arius from his point of view, he's trying to say, if we allow Jesus to be God, because because they hadn't worked out what does it mean for him to be person, right? If we allow that to happen, we're going to destroy God. And then what are we worship? We're worshiping idols. We're now pagans. So he, he takes two things that really have to be held in tension. That's right. Holds on to one of them and preserves it, but in the process, loses the other. And there are, you know, there, there are different stories with Arius in terms of, um, you know, upon his death, did Arius eventually kind of say, you know what, you're right. You know, Arius debated this point to point to point, you know, and then he had many followers after him and they would just throw scripture at each other, you know. Um, and uh, the great hero that comes out of this is, is uh, he's an, a deacon who gets promoted to, to becoming a bishop, which is Athanasius, who really almost single-handedly, because actually most of the church went along with Arius, that because, and it was a profound, and we're talking bishops all over the empire, kind of bought into Arius's idea, which is we have to preserve the oneness of God or else we're worshiping in vain. That the Trinity is such a radical thing that Jesus as God is so profoundly, in a sense, disturbing if you haven't kind of not only the imagination, but the faith to kind of unify that imagination, to see that Jesus is both man and God at the same time. That you can see why the scandal happens. But what's important that comes out of this is not only is Jesus, is Christ affirmed as consubstantial with the Father. But it begins a new series of chain reactions of what do we mean by him being a person in the human and divine sense? And so that, you know, within 125 years, they're going to, there's going to be a, a new kind of looking at the person of Christ. So before the Chalcedon event, if you will, that really kind of defines dogmatically who Christ is as a person, a couple of events happened along the way. Number one, um, one of Athanasius's devotees who um, wanted to affirm the kind of the holiness, the oneness of Christ in God, committed the exact opposite heresy in a sense of Arius, which is he denied Jesus having a human soul or a rational soul. In other words, that Jesus had a body that appeared to us, but it was only God behind that body that he wasn't really a man, he was just God cloaked in a human body. And that created a whole nother set of problems that the church had to deal with. I mean, you, you understand that scripture doesn't give us extremely clear answers all the time on everything. It's not, I heard someone once say that the, the Bible is um, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not. It's not an instruction manual. It's not like the Army's field manual. You know, it, it's it's not that at all. It Which re- they have for everything. Right. It, re- right. it requires discernment, and it, most importantly, though, it requires authority of a church to be able to, to say when these things arise, that Jesus is this or Jesus is that, and the church can say, no, 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 Jesus is both these. He is fully divine and fully human. That It's so important because that leads the way to Chalcedon, these debates, but they're very important that we had them. And the nice thing is we can rest easily at night knowing 
those debates are had. We don't have to keep having them again, even though there are many Christians who still want to have the debates. To my mind, the church did what it was supposed to do with Scripture, and in other words, helping us kind of understand when we say in Colossians that he is the the image of God, the firstborn of all creation, what does it really mean? Which I think highlights to us something of the nature of the church and the answer to that question, then then why would Christ have ascended? And the answer is that, that at least in some sense, we don't fully understand this, but we then are incorporated as a church to enter into this dialogue with God, which we're going to see eventually by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can then wrestle, in this case wrestle theologically, to better appreciate God's love. That's right. We have come to the end of the episode. I'm Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. I'm Professor Todd Amick, and we'll see you next time. And if you want to catch Lanyap Theology on podcasts, go to ccradio.live under the Shows tab and find Lanyap Theology. Also, go on our app and download our app for free in your Apple Store or Google Play. Just search Catholic Unity Radio. It's free. You can listen online at 3.30 for Lanyap Theology every Friday and also in the podcast app. Lanyap Theology is a production of Catholic Community Radio.